Hallelujah. How on that note, let's uh, join together this morning and just celebrate together uh, the wonderful family of God that we're a part of. We join with the Church Universal this morning in coming before our Father and celebrating the wonderful family that we are a part of today. Welcome to everyone here. It's a wonderful thing to welcome people back to the Houghton community and the Houghton Church. I just understand that the Barnetts are having a family reunion, and uh, so they're having a big meal. And if you want to join them for lunch, I'm sure they wouldn't mind. So, uh, so anyways, welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church this morning. All those that are joining us uh, by way of uh, the internet and all the other ways that they do that. Welcome to everyone this morning. Please join me in the uh, responsive call to worship that is printed in your bulletin and maybe on the screen. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Heavenly Father, we ponder today how firm a foundation our relationship with you truly is. There is no way that we could face the uncertainties, the joys, the sorrows, the fears for the future... There's no way that we could even consider getting out of bed in the morning and facing those without the confidence that you are our foundation. And as we consider this week of Royal Family Kids Camp, we know that there are tasks and challenges that there's not a chance in the world we could face by ourselves. And a myriad of other situations that we look at and we know today that we can take confidence that you are our foundation. Thank you for that and for, for being our loving Father, and we'll give you the glory and our service and gratitude. In your name, amen.
Heavenly Father, you are our maker, our defender, our redeemer, and our friend. And we're grateful to be in your presence this morning. Open our hearts, Father, that we can hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you're seated, take a minute and greet those around you. Unless you've been away, you have no idea how fun it is to come back to this church. We often listen to the services. I get a little pop-up on my Facebook that says, Houghton Wesleyan is streaming live. And we often listen to the services from here. But actually hearing the organ is very different than watching it on an itty-bitty screen. And so it is a blessing to be here. Kevin and I are in the States for three weeks. Um, his dad's 90th birthday party was June 29th, so we came back two days before that, got to celebrate with him and his wife. He got married uh, about a year ago. Um, she's 72, he's 90. She has the energy of the Energizer Bunny. But, um, and then next Sunday is our daughter's wedding, and so Brianna's getting married up in Long Lake, so we're heading there tomorrow. And in between, we have packed as much time with family as we can. In fact, we have two of the grandkids doing all the traveling with us. We had forgotten how much work a two-year-old and a three-year-old can be. But we want to just thank you for praying for us. Kevin's at another church um, at the Buena Vista Wesleyan Church this morning. And he has the grandkids. So. Uh, I'm really breathing easy this morning. But we just want to thank you for praying with us. It's been exciting to see how... God has worked in some of the ways that we kind of expected and anticipated, and then in ways that we had no idea. Um, just real quick, one of the ways is through our dog. And if you get our prayer letters, Rolo gets mentioned, and his picture is in there often, because he has allowed us to meet so many people. Um, Kevin has prayed with people two or three times on the street as a result of having this dog with us. They stop and they want to talk. And sometimes they'll share something. One time he prayed for a guy in a wheelchair, a young man, and that led to other things I shared this morning that, um, in fact, that family is now watching our dog while we're here. And they have invited us to their home, and we've had them in our home as a result of conversations over this dog. Um, Kevin has met lots of people through that, and some of them have led to conversations that have included inviting people to activities that the church has done. So that's been kind of a, an unexpected blessing. We got the dog on Josiah's behalf, and now Josiah is here back in the States. Um, he graduated from the school in Prague, and um, we still have the dog. So <laughs> that seems to be how it works when kids go off. 
Um, we do want to ask that you would pray, especially for the English camp. It starts just about three days after we get back to the Czech Republic. And there'll be about 47 um, young people coming. About half of them have been there before. Maybe a quarter of them actually know Jesus as their Savior. But the majority of them do not. And for some, it will be the very first time they have heard Jesus' name as anything other than a curse word. And it is a very common curse word, which is interesting in a country that doesn't believe that Jesus exists. They still like to use his name all the time. But we ask that you would pray for that English camp, that the students who come would feel welcomed and loved, and that God would really soften their hearts to hear the good news. They come because they want to be able to speak English with Americans, and we have a team of, there'll be about 12 Americans there for the eight or nine days. But what we really want to be able to do is share with them that they too can, and can find the hope and peace in Christ that we have. We thank you for praying for us. If any of you would like to get our prayer letters, we'd be glad to have you do that. We also update our Facebook page with prayer requests as they go. And we'll be doing that with the um, prayer requests for camp as well. So thank you very much. It is so good to be home. Good morning, everyone. I would like to welcome Nancy to come and give us an introduction to Royal Family Kids Camp for the week. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I thank you for having us once again. As we prepare for our commissioning uh, prayer, uh, we'd like to take a moment to let you know a little bit about what we'll be doing up at Camp Asbury. First of all, we will be having a ridiculous amount of fun. We'll be laughing, singing, doing woodworking, snow cones, boat rides, tea parties, every kid's birthday party, tons of crafts, and so much more. In addition, we will be basing much of our program on curricular matter that comes from our national headquarters, specifically that which goes along with this year's theme. If you haven't guessed by now, the theme is construction. This week at camp, our 52 campers, 32 girls and 20 boys, will watch as a ragtag bunch of builders constructs a house during our drama program. And during the Bible story, they'll hear about how God made it possible for Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Anytime there is a construction going on, there are lots of safety warnings, um, such as you'll see signs, usually triangular, danger, high voltage, hard hat area. Um, they're usually bright yellow or orange. And one of the songs we will be singing this week is called Kids Under Construction. Most of you are aware that our campers are referred to us by the Department of Social Services because of hardships related to past abuse and neglect. Many have been or currently are in foster care or are being raised by a relative because they did not have a safe and nurturing home in which to thrive. They have been harmed often by those that they most trusted and depended upon. Our job as volunteers with RFKC is to provide a week of safe, positive memories for each of our campers. We have faith that God 
has a vast love for each of these little ones and that he will use this week to help to help repair the hurt that has been done and help restore their hope in their future. RFKC is all about relationships. It's about rebuilding trust that has been broken and about pointing campers to a God who can be depended upon. Our verse this week comes from Jeremiah 29, 11, as you might notice in the insert. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. As an affirmation of God's continuing work of healing and restoration in the lives of our campers, the patio stone, excuse me, the patio stone that will be dedicated to our eight graduates, our eight 12-year-olds, uh, has been named by, has been named unbroken by two of our counselors, Cassie and Nicole Kemp. None of this would be possible without your support. In this church, there are many, many who have given their time, their talent, their finances, including those of you who gave to the Daniel P. Woolsey Memorial Fund. There are also more than 100 who have committed to praying for our campers and staff this week. Uh, if I could ask, I know how we like to stand and sit in our church, so if I could ask all our prayer partners, anyone that serves as a prayer partner, could you please stand so that we could thank you? Thank you. Thank you so much. You are truly the foundation of all that we do at camp. As we prepare to start this camp week, I'd like to leave you with the image of a road sign that I often see when I'm riding my bike. It's children at play. And as you pray, consider that the work we are doing is God's work of creating a safe and a trusting space so that our campers can experience what it means to be sheltered, to have their needs put first so that they can relax and just be kids. We are grateful to you for making that possible. Thank you, Nancy. One of the ways that we fulfill our mission here at Houghton Wesleyan is to share our love for Jesus with children. So today, can't think of a better way than to begin honoring our children, our mission here at the church, and Royal Family Kids Camp by just spending some time praying and commissioning them. So I would like to invite anyone who's involved in Royal Family Kids Camp to come forward so that we can pray for you this morning. We want to ask the Lord's blessing on this week as we commission the program and those involved. This ministry is one of the most important ways we fulfill our mission of loving those who are our neighbors. So this morning, we acknowledge how central RFKC is to the core mission of Christ and his church. Wow, what a good-looking bunch of people. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, we come before you this morning asking for your blessings to be on all aspects of camp this week. First, Lord, we pray that you would be with all the children who are coming as campers. Father, help them to put aside fear and loss. Help them to experience your love 
through these people standing in front of us that you have brought into their lives. I pray that children's hearts would be open to be able to love in return. And then, Lord, place a desire in them to know you more. Lord, please be with the counselors who will spend the most time with them. Give them patience and wisdom and understanding beyond human ability. Be with the program staff and directors and those that teach skills like crafting and fishing and those who work behind the scenes to provide tea parties and birthday parties and meals and all kinds of wonderful programming. Lord, guide those who plan the worship services and those who are present at the camp as grandparents and, and just so many other volunteers. Lord, and remind us to pray often and regularly through the week for Royal Family Kids Camp. Father, may this week truly be one of the best weeks in the lives of our campers as well as the staff. Give us all supernatural energy and wisdom. And Lord, give us tender hearts. Help us to be ready to be your hands and feet to do the work that you have for us. Father, we give this week totally to you and we seek your blessing today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. On behalf of Houghton Wesleyan Church this morning, we have a, a special presentation, actually a, a tribute that we would like to give. So I would like to invite Jamie to come up for this presentation. We would like to invite Barb and John Van Wicklin to come forward just for a minute or two. One of my favorite stories is the cobbler and the elves. Facing sure eviction and starvation, the generous shoemaker still gives away his last pair of shoes to a poor woman. With just enough leather for one more pair of shoes, the cobbler and his wife go to bed in despair. Elves come secretly in the night and use the last leather to create a pair of shoes so elegant and extravagant that the cobbler is able to sell them the next day for more than his asking price thereby by commencing a cycle of recovery that rescues the hopeless shoemaker and his wife. My favorite part of the tale is that these elves want no recognition or acknowledgement for their sacrificial service, motivated only by a sense of justice and altruism. Admittedly, it is a bit difficult to picture John Van Wicklin in a pointy hat and shoes with matching pointy ears but he and Barb are indeed that kind of elf. I remember the night 25 years ago that John sat in the beef and barrel with Barb, Derese, and me to tell us about his vision for Royal Family Kids Camp in Allegheny County. I admired his passion, but the eyebrows on the inside of my forehead were indeed raised in disbelief, for although I knew Barb had been running her own surreptitious RFKC for years in Belfast, and Fillmore Central Schools by funneling food, money, clothes, and love to desperately needy kids. John, the erudite psych professor, was in his own words, 
Not very good with kids. A quarter of a century later, we stand here today because like all unlikely but faith-filled heroes of the Bible, John heard a calling from God, however preposterous, and saw it to its completion. Martina McBride sings a song that says, Love's the only house big enough for all the pain in the world. In short, King John and Queen Barb have built that house of love that for thousands of hopeless and desperate and pain-filled children can find rest and peace. And anyone who doubts the efficacy of one week of summer camp in changing the course of a damaged child's life, all you have to do is ask the myriad social service workers, foster parents, and school teachers that hear the testimonies and read the college application essays of RFKC students that tell you that it was the thing that gave these otherwise hopeless children hope. RFKC has truly changed their names and their destinies. John, I think it's safe to say that you are very, very good with children. Several years ago, I sat on the lawn at Camp Asbury with another elf hero, Doug Maley, as we watched 52 broken, neglected, and abused children racing around on Carnival Thursday, gleefully launching water balloons at each other and munching on ice slushies crafted by Mike Lestoria. And as we witnessed an army of the church, of all races, classes, ages, creeds, and personalities joined together for one glorious moment around a holy and pure cause, Doug said to me, I think this is how heaven will be. At the end of every RFKC camp week, we perform a sacred tradition. We gather hand in hand in a huge circle, sometimes three or four layers deep around the tree that we've just planted, and we sing, Blessed be the tide that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. It's hard to imagine that any of the children truly understand the rational significance of the words, but somehow they completely grasp the point that despite leaving for now, there is a promise that this royal family that they have been adopted into will never end, at least in eternity. I like to imagine, Barb and John, that there will come a day when we will stand with you and sing those words in our true royal family home. Hand in hand with so many of those children you have rescued. That shall be your true legacy. In the meantime, let me on behalf of your royal family, family, the Houghton Wesleyan Church, and the entire fellowship of the saints, express our thanks to you for your faithful service in building a house of love for the least of these. I just, I just want to explain that uh, Barb's not here because she's running some snacks up to camp. She's always behind the scenes doing jobs like that, so it's fitting that she's doing that. Uh, the mantle of royal family has truly fallen on Nancy. Uh, I see it in her spirit. Um, 
and she has done a great job for the past four years to take this forward. The ministry needs to survive volunteers like James and Dries and Barb and myself, and it has. And I'm very thankful for that. And if it wasn't for James and Dries and Mike and Cindy and so many others, this just would not have been possible. So I'm blessed, richly blessed, by seeing this ministry go forward. Thank you. stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together.
may be seated. I can't help but celebrate with this little sweetheart here up at the front. Uh, she's got unbridled, uh, passionate joy of the Lord, and I think we'd all do well to imitate that once in a while. Be like little children. That's great. Please join me in the Old Testament reading this morning found in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on your military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and seven months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Please remain seated and sing the doxology with me as the ushers come forward to accept our tithes and offerings. Heavenly Father, you have given us so much. Thank you for the opportunity to give some of it back to you and participate in your vision of changing the world for good. In your name, amen. If grace was a kingdom stopped at the gate thinking I don't deserve to pass through after all the mistakes that I made oh but I heard a whisper it's heaven bent down so child don't you know that the first will be last and the last get a crown I'm just a beggar I'm a king I wish I could bring so much more and if it's true you use broken things then here I am Lord I'm all yours oh oh the ones with the scars that you 
As has been our practice in the past, uh, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to, as we go into a time of prayer, to join me here at the altar. I know that, uh, of course, God can hear us no matter what posture we take in prayer, but sometimes uh, our posture helps us orient our heart toward the Lord. And so, if you'd like to, I invite you to join me now at the altar. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in awe of who you are. Our hearts are full of gratitude for your love and your mercy and your grace that covers us in every moment of every day. We come to you today recognizing, as the Apostle Peter said, that you have the words of life. And we recognize our need for you and for your sustaining, life-giving presence in our lives. Help us to live continually and a posture of openness to what you have for us. Even now, Father, fill our hearts with your love so that we can be the people that you would have us to be. Father, there are many among us who are grieving or are in pain, and we lift them up to you today. We pray specifically for Faith Roski and her family at the death of her mother this past Tuesday morning. May all who are grieving this loss experience your comfort and peace. We also lift up to you those who are sick among us. We pray for Phil Maine and Dan Gurley and Florence Tuber and Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols, Gus and Louise Princell, Nancy Cole, Peter Lingenfelter, Doris Decepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck, Bev Rett, Emily Crickler, and others. Father, please bless each of these with your healing hand. Bring comfort and ease suffering. Surround each one with your love and with the love of your people. Lord, we also want to take a moment to remember the problems happening in northern Nigeria. The unrest and terrorism in that area are creating massive humanitarian crises. Lord, we lift this region up to you and ask for peace. 
May your people be light in the middle of this difficult and dangerous situation. And we ask, Father, for you to bring an end to the violence there. And we thank you, Lord, for your servants who are working to spread your love around the world. And we thank you specifically today for Kevin and Cindy Austin working in the Czech Republic. Father, we ask for your blessing on them and their family in every way. We thank you for their heart, for those who have not heard of Jesus, for their obedience to your call, and for the ministry that you have given them. Thank you for their presence with us today and for this good report. Please strengthen and sustain them as they seek to do your will in the check. May their ministry be fruitful and draw many into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And Father, it's in Jesus' name that we ask all of these things, remembering the prayer that he taught us to pray, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please join me in the New Testament reading found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 10. And also after the reading, uh, all the children are dismissed for Children's Church. Paul's vision and his thorn. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up in paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as we sing together.
When I was six years old, I discovered buried treasure. It wasn't technically buried. I found it by looking under my big brother's bed. My mother would have called that a distinction without a difference. And some might question uh, whether my discovery really qualifies as treasure. But when you're six years old, and you find your older brother's comic book stash, that's as good as it gets. It was like Christmas and birthday and last day of school all rolled into one. In retrospect, it also explained to me why my brother was not class valedictorian. He, he had quite a collection. He had Superman and Batman and the Green Lantern and the Flash, Joe Palooka and all the rest. I happily immersed my six-year-old self into the world of superheroes. A world where might makes right, where the strongest always win, where strength and power are king. It was intoxicating stuff. I also discovered a particular advertisement that seemed to be on the inside back cover of every one of those comics. It was an ad selling something from a guy named Charles Atlas. The, the ad was a story in cartoon form. Uh, some skinny guy and his girl are at the beach. Some bully comes up and kicks sand in his face, embarrassing him in front of his girlfriend. So skinny guy goes home and orders Charles Atlas's bodybuilding miracle. 
returns very quickly, it seems, to the beach, a sculpted Adonis, and promptly puts the bully in his place. Ah, sweet justice. We love those stories. I know I did. It was like a real-life version of what I saw in the comics with the superheroes. I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. We love it when Superman or Wonder Woman or, or whoever the flavor of the month is in superhero land rises up and takes care of all the bullies and the bad guys and puts them in their place. And I don't think it's an overstatement to suggest that this view of power dominates in our world. Might makes right. Only the strong survive. We're number one. I think I was in seminary before I began to seriously question that view of life, mostly by seeing how radically different the kingdom functions I discovered that in the kingdom of God, uh, things operate very, very differently than the world I encountered in my comic books. I discovered that the gospel is full of what I call eye rollers, ideas that cause an incredulous world to roll its collective eyes in disbelief. Blessed are the poor. The meek will inherit the earth. The last will be first. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Become like little children. If you want to be great, be a servant. And right here in our text for the eighth Sunday of Pentecost, when I am weak... And I'm strong. Charles Atlas would surely be rolling his eyes. And if we're honest, we have to admit that we have our doubts about weakness having much of anything to do with strength. But there it is in black and white right in the Bible. 2 Corinthians is widely considered to be the most revealing autobiographical source we have on the Apostle Paul. And chapters 10, 11, and 12 of 2 Corinthians are sometimes referred to as Paul's fool's speech because of his admitted reluctance and sense of foolishness to be talking and writing the way he is there. Apparently, there are in Corinth some who question Paul's apostolic authority, some who would even usurp his leadership by boasting about their own super-spirituality and authority, even claiming to have been given great visions. Reading these three chapters, you see that very, very reluctantly, Paul fights back by sharing his own apostolic credentials. He describes the sufferings and the persecutions that he has endured as part of his apostolic life. And here in chapter 12, ever so hesitantly, he owns up to the fact that he too has had some revelations. That's surely one of the great understatements of all time. 
But given the way that Paul's adversaries have touted their special insights into God, Paul admits that his revelations could easily result in an inflated sense of self. But he has been spared this. Yes, he has been transported to paradise, but as he puts it, lest he should be conceited about this, literally over-uplifted, he has also been given a protracted and debilitating weakness that pins him in humility to the earth and independence to the Lord. Paul calls it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. I see that as Paul's concession that he views this thorn as a way of keeping him grounded and a constant reminder to him that even as an apostle, he lives an ordinary, he lives as an ordinary mortal in a fallen world. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to the exact nature of Paul's thorn. Uh, Some have suggested it refers to the, the, the sort of incessant persecution from the Jews that he experienced. Others believe it had to do with epilepsy. Some say Paul had a sort of chronic inflammation of the eyes. Some suggest he had a speech impediment. Others talk about recurring bouts of malaria. There is no real consensus But whatever it is, Paul prays three times that this thorn might be removed. His prayer is answered, but not how he imagined or hoped. God tells him that the thorn would remain, but he would never lack sufficient grace to deal with whatever should come his way. The answer is not healing or removal of the thorn. The answer is is grace. That reminds us that sometimes it is the unanswered prayer that becomes a most significant step in our spiritual journey. Sometimes our weaknesses are the most direct path to strength. To amplify this, I want to focus in on three claims that Paul makes in this short text. First of all, he says, I have a thorn. And then he says, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And then finally he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. I have a thorn. If there were superheroes in the early church, Paul certainly was at the top of the list. Just read his apostolic resume here in 2 Corinthians. But in revealing his thorn, Paul openly embraces his humanity and all the disqualifiers that might undermine some claim to superstardom. At first glance, in the midst of a contest about authority, uh, one would hardly expect Paul to make this kind of admission. Conventional wisdom would hold that leaders need to polish their image. They need to maintain their aura of invincibility especially when their leadership is being challenged. But there's a bigger issue at stake here for Paul, and it's his relationship to the faith community. Paul is unwilling to secure his leadership and apostolic authority by compromising his understanding of the church. As you know, Paul sees the church as a family. 
a place of transparency, a place where burdens and joys and sorrows are openly and honestly shared. And it certainly couldn't have been easy for Paul to confess his weaknesses to this particular church because it included those who have been so critical and judgmental towards him. Living open, honest lives where even our weaknesses are known is not at all common, frankly, not even in the church. But Paul's honest admission here demonstrates that there are no superheroes in the church. None of us are superhuman. We're just human. Some of us struggle to accept that. And sometimes our reticence to accept being human blinds us to the good news of God's grace. When I first came here as pastor in the early 1980s, we had one morning service at 11, and when the college was in session, that service was in Wesley Chapel. Communion in Wesley Chapel was an ordeal. That's what led me to introduce intinction. It required 36 stewards, a thousand or so of those little bitty glasses that had to be filled and then washed, and choreography worthy of a Broadway musical. One of the last pieces of advice my predecessor, Mark Abbott, gave me was such, never let Fred Drexler talk you into having a communion rehearsal. <laughs> and if you really get that line, you've been here a long time. <laughs> One Sunday, we were doing communion, and I wished we'd had a rehearsal. It was a fiasco. Somebody dropped a tray. The trays were meeting in the middle of the rows instead of the alternating rows. Just about everything that could go wrong went wrong, and I was fuming about it inwardly. And afterwards, I was, I actually started apologizing to God for the fiasco we had made of the means of grace. And the Lord said to me, you know, if human beings could get things right, you wouldn't need to do communion at all. Our humanity is the opportunity for God's grace to come to us. Now, I'm guessing that none of us here can really identify with Paul at the point of his revelations and mystical experiences, but all of us know exactly what he means when he talks about thorns. Maybe not as precisely as messengers of Satan, but as poignant and oft-times painful reminders of our mortality. The fact is we all have thorns. We all have weaknesses. I got thorns. You got thorns. All God's children got thorns. Sounds almost lyrical, doesn't it? So here I am preaching to Briar Patch Wesleyan. A gathering of people with thorns. All of us have weakness and infirmities that hinder us in various ways, and, and right here in the community of faith, in the church, is where we should be openly ourselves, thorns and all. But what happens? 
Years ago, I read a short article by Charles Swindoll entitled Lessons from a Tavern. And Swindoll was trying to answer the question, why are people so loyal to their neighborhood bar? And his conclusion was, it's because it's the one place they can go and just be themselves. And then he ended with this line, which has haunted me for years. The Christian church is the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. Who wants to get shot? So unlike Paul, we often try to hide the thorns. A while back, I was with my family in New York City, and we went to a New York Knicks game at Madison Square Garden. And I'm watching before the game starts, stuff happening in front of me. And I see this guy emerge, and he's selling these big, huge, we're number one fingers made out of foam. I mean, they were exorbitantly priced. And it's the New York Knicks, for goodness sakes. I mean, they're... The only thing they've been number one in is basketball futility. And, and I'm thinking, boy, good luck selling those things. He sold out before he got to my row. I'm thinking how ridiculous it is to see a bunch of people spending a lot of money so they can get a finger and wave it and say, we're New York Knicks and we're number one. But they're fans, which is short for fanatics. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really mean a thing. How much more silly it is to see the elaborate steps we take to preserve our images of self-sufficiency and wholeness in church of all places. Even at the risk of his leadership, Paul is not willing to play that game. I was trying to think this week about how the Old Testament reading about David becoming Israel's king spoke to this. They must have thought, you know, this guy killed Goliath. We're getting us a superhero. Little did Israel know that in accepting David, that it was getting a very flawed man, a man who would be broken through choices that he made, choices that would follow him and his family and the entire nation for all of his lifetime and beyond. David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he was a superhero. David came to understand that a broken spirit and a contrite heart are what God is really looking for. Read the Psalms. They're a testament of a person who accepts their brokenness before God. There are no superheroes in the kingdom. But that's okay because Paul has God's word on the fact that his power is perfected in weakness. I doubt that there's any greater difference or contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world than in the way that power is conceived and demonstrated. The kingdoms of the world operate on the principles of might makes right, that the rich and the powerful are always on top, so to be weak and vulnerable is to be avoided at all cost, even at the cost of pretending not to be weak and vulnerable. But perhaps part of Paul's revelation is that he has shown that 
in God's kingdom, human weakness is God's way, his modus operandi, if you will. Paul sees that instead of slowing him down, his thorn worked to save him from spiritual pride and therefore to open him to God's amazing grace, allowing Christ's power to rest on him. Remember that this is the same Paul who wrote earlier in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And as you well know, some of these vessels are in pretty sorry shape. Unfortunately, human beings from Adam and Eve onward have demonstrated a disheartening capacity to forget that and to lapse back into self-sufficiency. I can do it myself. Our weaknesses, says Paul, aim at preventing us from falling into that grave mistake. And if you think that God's use of weakness is some novel Pauline idea, you haven't been paying attention to the Bible. To Abraham, a landless, childless senior citizen, God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. To Moses... A speech-impaired, runaway felon? God says, you're going to be my mouthpiece before Pharaoh. To Gideon, cowardly, shamefully hiding himself in the winepress, God says, hail, valiant warrior. When Israel's choosing the successor to King Saul, this imposing physical specimen of a man, God bypasses all the strapping sons of Jesse and says, there's the run of the litter. Let's take him. And when it comes time for the incarnation, God entrusts himself to a peasant teenage girl. From the beginning, God has chosen the weak and the unimpressive to confound the so-called wisdom of the strong. But even all of that would not adequately prepare us for what God does in Jesus Christ. Paul teaches us throughout his writings that the cross itself is the ultimate example of how God operates in the world. And I fear that our common understanding of the cross leaves us woefully short of grasping its true significance in revealing God's way in the world. We too often simply look at the cross, well, Jesus took my place there so all my sins can be forgiven, and we leave it at that. That is a woefully narrow reading of Calvary. We need to see how the cross was God's frontal assault on the whole notion of power in this world. The cross, as it was commonly employed in history, was the ultimate expression of exerting power over someone to crucify a victim, to hang them naked, completely exposed to everyone, was the way that power expressed itself. It was a way of saying to the crucified person, you are weak, you are utterly helpless, we have absolute control over you, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Except, of course, when the person on that cross is God himself willingly surrendered to this horrible fate as the ultimate expression of his love for humankind and all creation. In Colossians 2, Paul says that 
in the cross, God has turned the tables on the principalities and powers. God has disarmed the powers and authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them. God takes the ultimate expression of weakness and uses it to make a laughingstock of the powers of darkness. Weakness in God's hands becomes a redemptive energy that overcomes anything. And that puts a whole new spin on my power is made perfect in weakness. Thus Paul's conclusion, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom. The whole idea of power stood on its head. And all of us thorn-infested humans can discover that when we are weak, we are strong. We discover that in God's kingdom, we don't have to hide our infirmities and weaknesses. We don't have to posture and disguise our true selves from one another. But we are free to glory in our thorns, knowing that God uses them to demonstrate the sufficiency of his grace and the perfection of his power. Now, as you know, delighting in weaknesses, hardships, and difficulties is not exactly business as usual in the human experience. You have to be deeply committed to the values of God's kingdom before you can get to this point. But human life has a way of reminding us that we are completely dependent upon God and his grace and that we dare not fall into the trap of thinking that we are self-sufficient. And we also know this, that God's grace is particularly abundant upon those who understand and embrace their weakness. I want you to know that there is grace, there is power that is only available to us when we embrace our brokenness and weakness and allow God to use it for his glory and our sanctification. So here's the deal, folks. You accept the brokenness and weakness of your life in exchange for God's power resting on you. I told you earlier that I was in seminary before I seriously began to question my ideas about power and strength. But it just wasn't in the classroom that that was happening. My first year at seminary, I was invited up in the central Ohio to speak at a youth weekend at a church Friday, Saturday, twice on Sunday. My younger brother lived about 20 minutes from the church, so I decided to stay with him. Problem is, is he had a cat. What kryptonite is to Superman, cats are to me. It wasn't so bad Friday night. I'd only been there a couple of hours, so I was just sort of stuffed up and coughing a little bit. But then when I slept there all night, the next day, I was in full-blown asthma attack. And I was using my inhaler way more than I should. I could not get a deep breath. And I remember driving to the church that night just freaking out. Thinking, I can't preach. I can't breathe. And I, God, you got to help me. And I coughed and wheezed all the way through the beginning of the service. The minute I stood up to preach, I was breathing like one of those marathon runners from Kenya. As soon as I stopped preaching, the asthma came back. That happened two more times the next day. And I drove back to seminary thinking a lot about my grace is sufficient for you. 
My power is made perfect in weakness. By the way, ever since that experience, I always specify my cat allergy when I go speak somewhere. It's one thing to know that God can overcome our weaknesses. It's quite another thing to be presumptuous. <laughs> we human beings, we are, we are walking paradoxes. People capable of being the recipients of God's wisdom and revelation, capable of proclaiming the very words of God with power to a needy world, and yet left to deal with all of the possibilities of our mortality and human frailties. Possibilities, what, what, what an intriguing word. Philosophers sometimes use the language of possible worlds to clarify an abstract idea or to construct an argument. For example, there's a possible world where the painting dogs playing poker is considered great art. I have relatives who think they live in that world. Or Josh, my son, there's a possible world where you're, you will get a new car for graduation. Who says philosophy isn't practical? There is a possible world where weakness is actually strength. And that's the world you and I were initiated into at our baptisms. But as long as we prefer the superhero approach to dealing with bullies and issues in our lives, we are holding it at arm's length and it remains only a possible world. Blessed are the weak. For some, that's just one more eye roller. For others, at best, it's just a possible world. But for others, including many of you here today, that's the world you live in. And so as Paul sees it, you can moan and whine about everything that's wrong in your life. Or you can see all of those infirmities and weaknesses as potential conduits for God's sufficient grace. While mystical ecstasy may have all the appearance of divine power, the reality is otherwise. Blessed are the weak. Christ draws near to us and gives us his grace and power in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you how often we try to hide our weaknesses and our infirmities from one another. That must grieve you, and it certainly hurts us and inhibits the power of the church. Help us today to rest in the sufficiency of your grace, to understand that your power is perfected in weakness, and help us to, to live our lives in such a way that the power of Christ might rest upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
please receive the benediction. Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.